And now, from somewhere in the Houston Midtown area, it's the sit down with Slick Vic. Welcome, everyone. It's the sit down with Slick Vic. I got a very special guest today, um, a man who does something that kind of recently everybody's been, you know, kind of letting you showing their appreciation for, even though I feel like these people should always be appreciated. And that's Robert Schwartz, um, registered nurse, nurse, paramedic. Um, Robert, thanks for coming on the show, man. I really appreciate it. It's a privilege, Vic, and I um, am honored to be a guest on your show. Well, thank you very much. Um, let's go ahead and just get started. Um, a little bit about your background. Are you from Texas or are you from somewhere else? I was born and raised in Dallas, Texas. Oh, no. Yep. <laughs> the enemy. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Moved down here in, uh, when I was 13 years old. My parents got a divorce, and uh, my mother raised us three children here in Houston. Okay. Okay. Um, so what were some of the things you were into uh, when you were young? Oh, wow. Good question. Um, so I put the B in bad. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, a bad boy. I was the kind of kid that uh, all their mothers warned the daughters about, you know. I had uh, first motorcycle when I was 15, and um, there's a picture of my second one as a chopper. And uh, I got more tickets before I was age 16 than most people get in their careers. Wow. So I had to go before the judge with my mom. The judge told me, you get another ticket, son, I'm pulling your license. Yeah, you know, I'm always, you know, I love going fast. I love I love speed, but I just don't trust myself. You know, I was, I've been in like five or six pretty, pretty nice car accidents. Um, I always tell myself if I rode a motorcycle, I'd probably be, be dead by now. And I should have been many times over. Um, that thing was not um, stock. So every time I hit the brakes and skid a little bit, it wipe out. All my jeans had holes in them from, you know, biting the dust. And uh, I, um, uh, it, it's kind of what inspired me, uh, you know, getting so many tickets and in trouble with the law was uh, juveniles. Um, perspective was, hell, if I can't beat them, join them. <laughs> so <laughs> when I got out of high school, I uh, um, went into law enforcement and was an officer with the sheriff's department, Dallas County Sheriff's Department. So, th years. so that was the logic, huh? You, <laughs> <laughs> that was the logic, yeah. You were just having, you know, you were getting, uh, having issues with the law and you're like, well, you screw it, man. I can't beat them. I'm going to go ahead and join the team. Um at that time, like, uh, was, was that something, you know, obviously current events, you know, the, all the drama right now with, with the police officers. Um, how was the, uh, how was, uh, I guess the, uh, the climate at that time with law enforcement? Was that something that kids wanted to do or was it still kind of frowned upon? Good, good question. Cause, uh, in 1982, when I oh. got out of high school, you see, there, there wasn't all this, um, they were still the good guys. Okay. Okay. And it was the age of the innocence, the end of the innocence, if I can use um, uh, a little cliche. Um, and so the, um, it, it, 
I had the best weed wine song, you know, all that growing up in high school. And, and so, um, yeah, I wanted to, to be part of the team and, and, um, you know, one of the good guys and, and all that stuff. Actually, that my dream was to become a motorcycle cop, right? So I could ride, get right. tickets, you know, <laughs> so the best of both worlds. Do you have to like to be a motorcycle cop? Is that something extra you have to do or do you just ask for that? Well, so, you know, I started like in the very, very bottom rung with, mm-hmm. with the sheriff's department. It was in corrections. Okay. So started in the county jail and, um, uh, that was where, uh, two, two incidents happened that changed my life. Um, one, um, you know, one of the inmates tried to commit suicide, slashed his wrists. Uh, the other inmates notified me. I racked him off in their cells, got in, got the guy down to the, the infirmary and, um, put some pressure dressings on him. And, uh, I felt kind of good, you know, and helping people instead of incarcerating them, you know, that, that, that stuck with me, it made a impression. And then the other incident was quite negative. Um, I got jumped by some inmates in, in the jail, nearly beaten to death. And, uh, I, um, was, uh, before another officer could arrive and, and pull him off me, uh, I, uh, had a broken neck, a broken nose, a concussion, and that's where my list kind of developed from there. Um, so I have, a some experience with, uh, the, the incarceration system. I, I was a bad boy as well. Mm-hmm. So I, I, you know, I did a little time in, uh, the Texas Department of Corrections, and I never witnessed it. I never actually witnessed the inmates beating on the officers, but I definitely witnessed the officers beating on the inmates. There was an there was an incident that I heard about where a female officer was beaten or jumped, I think, by a couple of inmates. But let me ask you this: um, not that it's ever right, not that no one deserves anything, but this particular officer was one of those that really. Um, you know, was, was power hungry, really, really took advantage of her, her of her position. Um, h- how were you with the inmates? Were you one of the guys that was real friendly or were you somebody who was just doing his job? H- how would you say your, your role was? So I was naive coming out of high school, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, being thrust in that environment. Essentially, we're all in jail. Right. Mm-hmm. So I got to go home for 16 hours a day. They had to stay 24 seven. Um, but, uh, it's, it's a, a tense environment that nobody wants to be in. And so, you know, I, I had my good days and bad days. I, I tried to, to treat them with, you know, respect and 30% of the guys don't belong there. They were just, it's, it's the law is a huge vacuum cleaner just sucks people up and spits them in the, right. you know, in the laundry, in the, in, in the, the, the dirt bag. And, and, you know, the guys can't defend themselves. Then there they stay or they get run through the system and, you know, dirty cops sling, sling mud on them and, and it sticks. And, you know, the DA is in bed with the, the, the police and it's all, it's all a big, you know, racket to wring money out of, uh, the, the people that don't have it. Um, you know, we have one of the largest, uh, MA populations in, you know, the civilized world. And, mm-hmm. um, so, you know, I learned a lot of rights about, um, their rights about the legal system, about the law and, and how, 
um, it applies to people and, you know, the unfairness because I heard some of the guy's stories and I listened to him. I tried to befriend some, but, you know, um, it was, uh, a bad day for them and I. And, uh, so there, there it went down, but, uh, it took me most of 30 years to overcome my disabilities and injuries from that incident. And, uh, about 98 percent now with good surgeons and good you know medicine over the years and uh so uh, i'm assuming that after that happened i mean you must have you must have definitely had a lot of hate right in your heart or or was it i mean I'm, obviously i've never gone through something like that but i can only imagine you know you're just doing your job um you're describing yourself as somebody who's fair and and then for something like that to happen how how were you afterwards? Like, what what was your your mentality after that? You're traumatized emotionally. Mm-hmm. You're traumatized physically. You're you, you um you've been violated. I mean, uh, and so it was a life changing experience. Um, of course, uh, I could have handled it better, um, but having lived through more pain and, and procedures and, and disabilities and most um, physicians and nurses, most medical practitioners, I have more of an empathy for my patients now. And I know, you know, I can, I can give them good counsel when they got herniated discs and stuff like that. I, I can I can coach them on how to, to rehabilitate themselves or tell them who the good surgeons are. Yeah, because you've been there. I've been there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And three surgeries on my nose, three surgeries on my neck, you know, concussion scars on my frontal lobes. Um, some, uh, uh, I, I didn't even realize that I was going through a, a trauma course and, uh, it was talking about post concussion syndrome. And I said, you know, shit, that's what I got. You know, it's, it's, I don't know if you ever saw that HBO, um, documentary on crash the guy um was a snowboarder and Mm-mm. head injury and rehabilitation you know that kind of stuff so um my brain kind of wired around the the short-term memory issues and and stuff like that um uh one thing that helped me most in 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 high school was uh um auto mechanics okay okay and uh, auto mechanics the reason is because it's a uh troubleshooting Right. right. Problem solving, critical thinking, um, going it's, down. It's like exercise for the brain. Basically. Systems, systems analysis. Mm-hmm. And then when you compare that to the human body, we got a cooling system. We got an engine, which is our heart, a pump. We got the, the, the circulatory system, the, the respiratory mm-hmm. system, the urinary system. You know, you have all these systems. So, so I was already used to systems and troubleshooting and diagnostic and critical thinking and everything from a very young age. And so when I incorporated that into the human body, um, it, it, the body's a machine and, um, you put the right fuel in, you get the right output. And, and you can see, um, you know, uh, from 1982 when I graduated high school to today, I'm five pounds heavier and no accident. You know, I, uh, um, have embraced, you know, uh, healthy eating habits and exercise habits and everything. Survival. It's survival because I'm 56 years old now and I have, I'm in a, in a, in a game. It's a young man's game. 
You know, right. a prize fighter has a sweet spot, 18 to 35. You know right. what I mean? And, mm-hmm. and I'm past my prime in my career. And in order for me to stay and be able to, you know, lift people out of wheelchairs and, you know, turn them over and all this stuff that's physically, emotionally, and mentally demanding under crises, I, I have to stay fit. I have to stay fit mentally, emotionally, you know, physically. And, and so, you know, that's part of, uh, um, yeah, one of the, the the great tools that that I gleaned from from high school was was that, um, and then uh, yeah, then my you know so many tickets of wanting to be a, a cop, and then after after that experience, I decided to change gears and and uh, my mom go back to go back to college, you know. So I went to college and you know fiddled around community college first two years, and then came across a paramedic. Um, open house, you know, kind of thing that they offered in Austin Community College. And, uh, um, in 1989, got my paramedic license. And uh, what, what would you say drew you to that? Was it that experience that made you want to do that career? Well, it was the experience of helping that guy who tried to commit suicide. Okay. That, that stuck that, with you. That stuck with me. Yes. And I figured, gosh, if I can make a career out of helping people, then wow, what exciting, you know, saving lives. So, and I'll tell you a, a trippy experience I had, you know. So when you're a kid, you imagine yourself as a superhero, like a Batman, a Superman. Of course. You know, right? I even jumped off a roof with a cape trying to fly, <laughs> you know. I mean, I was, I, we, we were, that's, that's a, you know, kid's dream. And so um I get out of my ambulance one day and, uh, it's a chest pain call and I pull out my life pack and I, you know, I got my radio on my shoulder and, um, you know, and, and getting all my gear and stuff together. And, and then <laughs> I had this weird, like epiphany that I'm living my childhood dream. Mm. I'm, I'm, I'm a superhero I'm driving around. Yeah. I'm driving around the Batmobile. Okay. And I'm using my utility belt. Right. And, you know, I've got all these things and I'm, you know, getting kittens out of trees and helping little old ladies across the street and, you know, chest pains, heart attacks, scootings, you know, the whole thing. And, and, and it was, for a moment, it like, you know, I, I, I was like, and, and that, that part was, that was a cool kind of thing where you had, you know, just something clicked and it's like, hey, I'm then, but back to the job, you know what I mean? <laughs> No, you're right. You're completely right. Um, you know, you guys are superheroes, you know, paramedics, firemen, you know, police officers. You're, you're putting your life on the line for other people's lives. And that's what a superhero does. You know, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely something that that needs to be recognized and appreciated, and not just now because of COVID. Like, that should always be the case. It shouldn't take a pandemic for people to recognize, like, hey, these people these people are important, you know, and people just don't think about that, you know. Well, uh, go ahead. But I, 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 you know, it, it's it sounds conceited, but I mean, I paid my dues. I, I mean, I got the shit beat out of me. I got, uh, you know, I, I mean, it, there was no silver tongue in my mouth. Shining shoes in the family business since I was five years old. So I was working since, you know, I can remember. But um, yeah, I I had reached uh, a a place of satisfaction where, I mean, I could pull a rabbit out of my head every now and then and, and it felt good. 
Now, what was the the training like to to become a, a paramedic? What it was was that very uh, intensive or? How did that go? It was. It was um, more intensive then than it was now um, because first you're an EMT, which is your basic, uh, uh, your CPR, it's your um, bandaging and splinting, your, your first aid. Right. right. And um, then the whole foundation of pre-hospital emergency medicine um, paramedic level is advanced cardiac life support. So they found if they could, number one killer in the world, and I checked it on the World Health Organization, by far cardiovascular disease. That includes stroke, complications from hypertension, heart attacks, you know, all, all the stuff with the, 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 the heart, lung, and vascular system. And, um, so they found that if they could get to the people early, you know, shock them, give them the right meds and stuff. And there, there was a, a high survival rate. So it used to be the old hearses that would um, pick up people because it was the only vehicle that they could transport people lying down. Mm. And there was a conflict of interest uh, between the mortician and the... Right. <laughs> <laughs> which way to take them? Probably more money taking them to the morgue. Right. You know, um, and then you had, you know... Uh, uh, I think the, the Vietnam War um, implemented a, a lot of uh, new measures in, you know, um, trauma. You got your military into shock garments where you could, you know, put, essentially put um, some inflatable pants on them and pressurize it and control bleeding and pump oh, wow. it into the, yeah, push the same thing the guys wear, you know, the, the, the jets with G-force. They mm -hmm. have to have a garment that you know, constricts the blood from going to gravity and push it into the central circulation. So the heart and brain, you know, maintain it. But there was all kinds of technology that came out. And they also discovered that um, through so many cadavers that this the, the coronary artery disease, a plaque in the arteries developed around 18 or 20, you know. And then that they, they realized the diet of Americans with all this animal fat was causing the cholesterol, was causing the plaque. And then you had this whole shift in, you know, um, you know, your nutrition pyramid and, you know, stuff like right. that. And, and so, I mean, th th this wasn't an era of, uh, I mean, HIV AIDS wasn't even a disease when I started. We didn't even wear gloves. Wow. Um, yeah. So it was, um, it, it, it was really, I, I was getting in during a time of tremendous change and transformation in the field. And so, um, you know, we could do electrocardiograms and tell if it was an MI or everything. So the reason it was so tough, getting back to your original question, I'm sorry. I, I oh, you're fine. Off on it, but um, it was because we were the eyes and ears of the physician and we, we, we operated under a physician's umbrella of his license. And um, so... You memorized your, your algorithms, your code, your codes, your, your EKG interpretation, because according to what you see on the, the heart is doing on the monitor is a medicine you give them in the pathway right. you go. And so, um, I, uh, I remember, especially with my learning disability from the trauma, 
you know, uh, years earlier. And, um, I, um, I remember getting my dog, my bulldog, I'd make him lie down and he was my patient and I used <laughs> all my equipment and I'd stack my equipment on one side and then, you know, my bulldog would, you know, passively lie there as I, you know, did all this, you know, stuff to him. Um, uh, and then, um, and then I got, when I knew all my equipment was on the other side of the dog, then I was done with the code. You know what I mean? So, so I, I had to practice extra hard to, to get extra good at, at, at my, my, my skills and my, uh, my knowledge. But that was the foundation of, of my, um, pharmacology. That was the foundation of my, you know, understanding of the system. And then with my mechanical background, it, it, it kind of all, you know, um, um, melded and and i got a uh i got to be good i got to be good not because i was smart i was i was slow and 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 um naive and um i uh um had to try harder you know but under adverse situations um and like i mentioned earlier i, I left the state of texas and i took a job in St. Louis, Missouri. Okay. And I was a paramedic with the city of St. Louis. Um, and uh, that was the closest thing I'd come to a war zone uh, in my life because it was a racially polarized city. Um, and you, uh, we had 12 to 14 ambulances on a good day. It was a third service independent of police and fire. Um, fire is an institution that's been around since the foundation of the city and police as well. And they both have unions on, but nobody wanted the red haired stepchild of EMS because we weren't a moneymaker. We were a liability. We were a drain on, on their system. And when you have half a million people in 14 ambulances, you're going from, um, you know, th th there's no, triage it's everything code three here code three there you know you just lights and sirens all over the the city and we didn't even have um crew stations they'd tell us to go to fourth and main and wait for a call you know um so we'd go to an intersection and um being new i got the worst ambulance that had the old cherry top on top mm -hmm. and the siren you know right over the 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 windshield and and i had a diesel exhaust leak coming into the cabin wow. so by the end of the day you know wah, 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 you know and all this breathing exhaust my head was ringing <laughs> my ears were ringing my head was pounding and and i mean that's just the drive that's not even the calls you know but i remember sitting i had a black partner he's an old guy ready to retire and um he was driving and we were at the corner of in 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 the hood you know and this kid drives up on a bicycle rides up he must have been six or seven years old. And he, he tapped on my partner's window and rolled it down. And uh, he told my partner, he said, they got you in the crosshairs. You all need to move along. And um, I didn't know what was going on. He goes, thank you, son. And Ur uh, is like, where are we going? He, uh, and he repeated what he said. And then <laughs> it dawned on me. They were... They're getting ready to gun, gun us down. They didn't care. They didn't want us in their neighborhood. You know, move wow. along. Move along. You're just there to help. And I mean, I mean, they're not going to say that if one of them gets shot, I, right? Well, they're going to need you then, huh? Well, you know, the the, the kid had a conscience. You know, right. and rather than seeing, you know, somebody get shot in his front yard, he 
told us to, you know. Now, you mentioned this was happening um, early 80s. So that's, like you said, before HIV, really when the, the you know, the, the crack pandemic comes along. Was that something that, that just really was a real eye-opener when, when all that really, I mean, because that happened around the same time, right? The, the crack pandemic, a, uh, HIV. HIV, um, smoke and water, what was it, PCP, PCP heroin. Yeah. yeah, yeah, all that, all that did, stuff. Did, was it, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that, that just peaked. Your, your job, right? It, it, it was, I mean, I never worried too much about it. You know, I put on the gloves and I, I, I did the job, but I was never really in fear of catching this or getting that or a needle stick or, you know, I just, I just did it. And, um, I was so caught up in doing what I was doing. That was just, uh, you know, part of the new protocol, you know, I mean, and since then, um, we've had MERS and SARS and bird flu and swine flu and Ebola. And, and then now we got this COVID. And I mean, yeah, it, you know, COVID for me, it's the flavor of the month. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I've never seen such a, you know, knee jerk overreaction to a, a virus than, you know, uh, viruses have been around since before the dinosaur, you know, and, and, uh, yeah, they, there's an intelligence behind it that far exceeds ours. So if the, the planet needs to, to thin the herd, it'll do what it's got to do one way or another. Right, right. And we'll, we'll definitely get to that. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so I, I can only imagine um, in this profession, you see, you know, a lot of casualties. You see a lot of just horrendous things. Um can you remember like the first time you 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 saw a dead body or saw somebody die in front of you or have you seen so many by now that it it just you kind of become kind of you know you de- develop like a callus to it. I good question and thanks for the redirection. I um no, I don't become numb. Um I get caught up in the moment and uh, the the adrenaline kicks in and it becomes autonomic. Um and so, you know, I'm, I'm working so hard to, to, to achieve the objective, which is to keep them from dying on me. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe in the right to die, but you, you don't, you can die anywhere, anytime, just not on my shift. Okay. Right. Too much paperwork. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you made it for 89 years. You're going to make it a few more hours till I get you to the ICU, damn it. And then you can do all that. But, um, so, uh, uh, I, I remember the, the, the worst, uh, the worst call, it was really brilliantly set up hit. Um, so they, um, it was gang, gang style slaying. And, um, what they, they did was they called, uh, called in all these false shootings, like, um, and kind of scattered, you know, I went to three myself, but there were other units and other police officers and everything before they made their actual hit. Okay. So, um, they, they, they spread us out. And then by the time, you know, I got the, the, the fourth shooting call, you know, I walk in with my equipment. Oh, yeah, sure. Another. And there's like these five bodies all over wow. the room. Yeah. And so I'm, it's me and my partner and quick and going from patient to patient to patient and, you know, checking pulses and looking, you know, and it, the, the guy who, as I walked, he breathed his, you know, last breath. 
goes out. And then, so that's a sign of life. So we took him, you know, and worked him in the back and this and that and got him to a hospital and, you know, cut his trousers off and he was pretty much pulses. And then he was shot in the groin like four times and the doctor just called it, you know, Mm -hmm. but, um, that was, you know, that was one of the, uh, I made an impression on me, you know, I mean, the mastermind that pulled it off and um, the way it was done and, and, and kind of, I mean, that's real triage when, when you got, you know, multiple, you got mass casualty and you got a, who, who can you focus your resources and say, and that is the heart of emergency medicine. Okay. If you take the triage out of um, the ER, it's no longer an ER. Okay. You have to, that's why the, these, the people in the emergency room, they get, so I was there before he was, and I did, I came first. And then, you know, if you can come up and talk to me and tell me how bad it is, you need to go sit down. You need to go sit down, <laughs> exactly. And I used to be able to stand up and, and this Memorial Southwest, you know, one of the busiest, um, uh, level, you know, two, three trauma centers in, in the nation. And I used to be able to stand up and say, you know, do not come up to my desk, okay, and ask me if you're next. If you you, you think your emergency is life-threatening or has become life-threatening, let me know and I'll reevaluate you. Otherwise, have a seat, okay? Because I'd be getting badgered and I, I couldn't do my job. And there there's one absolute rule um, where the law can, you know, take effect. You cannot interrupt the smooth operation of an emergency room and I can call in police or whoever I need to, to make it a smooth operation. And you can't do now. It's too touchy feely. Oh, he looked at me wrong. Oh, he's prejudiced. Oh, you know, it's like, I don't care what, I don't care if you sleep in, you know, Beverly Hills or on the park bench. Okay. If, you know, my job is to make sure nobody dies in my lobby. Okay. And, um, and that's what I'm going to do. It's the quiet ones that you don't know about. Okay. And, and it, it's a bystander that tells you he doesn't look good. You know what I mean? And fortunately with my EMS background, because I got ambulances coming in and I got people coming up. I got in and I, I am the, the gatekeeper because I know what's going on back there. I know how bad it is. Okay. And what those things are. And I gotta, I gotta make, it's the hottest seat in the house. All right. You know, I, I am the, the uh, sentinel at the, you know, the, um, uh, the drawbridge that opens up the castle. Okay. And, um, and my job is to, to make sure that people that, you know, need the help get it. And I'll, I'll ask EMS, hey, is this critical? Is this bullshit? You know what I mean? Yeah. And then they'll, they'll tell me, no, man, it was a bad, you know, accident, airbag deployed. We had to extricate him with the jaws of life. And yeah, no, I, you need to, you know, get this guy back. Or they'll say, bullshit, man, the fender bender. And, you know, it's good to call the Texas hammer. And you know, <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, and I can look him in the eye being a paramedic and, and talk paramedic with him. Right. Where right. most of the, most of the nurses without that paramedic experience, they dismiss these guys because they see them It's more work. Right. Mm-hmm. And they don't give them the respect. You don't ask them the questions. They ain't going to give the answers. Right. And, 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 and you don't give them the respect. Then you'll find out the hard way how bad it is by the time it's too late. So, um, that was, that was my, my strength in, uh, you know, managing it. And triage a hot seat. You can only do it once or twice a week because it oh, burns wow, you out. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know. I didn't ask you what your 
religious background was growing up. But I can only imagine seeing all this, experience what you have, kind of made you wonder or think about like what what is the what the fuck is going on here? What what reality am I living in? What world is this? And what are some of the answers? Did did you ever come across some type of epiphany, some type of moment that just made you just question or wonder what was the point of everything or what 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 what's going on here? The meaning of life. <laughs> I mean, no, and and and, and I, I I had a, a, a religious experience, spiritual experience, my uh, senior year of high school, and I'm not going to go into it, but um, it before I ever. Um, you know, uh, got into, uh, um, law enforcement, uh, after high school, I, I had to go investigate it and I had to come to an answer, um, that I could live with, you know, the experience I had. And, um, once, once, um, what I saw, you know, from my spiritual journey, was um, people, religions fighting over the details. My symbol is better than your symbol. My ritual is better than your symbol. Your ritual. The Shia against the, the uh, um, whatever, uh, the, the Orthodox against the ultra-Orthodox, the um, Roman Catholic against the Protestants. Protestants. I mean, it, it's just, it's all, a, nobody read the book. You know what I mean? They're just taking this, you know, priest or prophet or imam said this and that's what it means, but they're, they're talking to a bunch of people who never, when you, when you read the, the actual stuff, it's Buddhism, Hinduism, you know, it's all, it's all the same, you mm -hmm. know, do unto others as you want done to yourself, love thy neighbor as thyself, you know, um, honor thy father and mother, uh, it's don't kill, don't steal, it's, it's, you know, the basic stuff. So, um, and that's what separates, um, there's a thin veneer of, of, uh, civilization over an ape. Okay. We're just apes that are, we have rules and that allows us to live in, in, in something of a harmony, but we are the most vicious, um, animal on the planet. And we have killed more of our own kind and more, horrendous ways than uh so so seeing all this i incorporated and i i came up with a cliche you know and this is an original quote and living is terminal suffering is optional mm. okay it's a quote by robert schwartz um and ultimately it can be physical physical suffering it can be mental suffering it can be emotional suffering um but the the suffering, we missed most, I missed most of my life regretting the past or worrying about the future. All of my life has only happened in the now, in the present, in the moment. And, and, and so if I'm suffering now, then I'm, I'm, I'm wasting my life. So, yeah, I mean, these thoughts, a lot of them are not original. That, that was, that's from Eckhart Tolle, the, um, Tolle, uh, the power of now, you know, but I've had to in, incorporate them in my understanding of, of what's going on because, you know, I uh, gotta make the most of my resources 
with, you know, what's going on around me. And sometimes, you know, I don't always make the right decisions. Things don't always go well. But when I am able to redirect the course of events and a life with mileage is saved and I hear they walked out, you know, and I, I, I thought for sure they were dead, you know, then, I mean, that's, I mean, that's, that's the point of what, of why, why you do what you do. Right. And that, that's that the ultimate satisfaction. That's the secret sauce that yeah. you never know when it's gonna, uh, arrive. You never know, um, when you're going to find it and it's, it, it can be years between, you know, coming across that save that, that made the difference. And I'll tell you one, my mom. Okay. I, this episode of the podcast is brought to you by The Ranch Houston, compromised of Ashe Yoga and Wellness, The Garden Project, and The Mill HTX, is an intentional, conscious organization created for adults to connect to an inclusive community through art, food, nature exploration, and movement, and for school-age children to empower themselves through education on sustainability and edible gardening. Everyone is encouraged to connect to the curiosity of their inner child as they nurture their nature in a world that so often encourages separation and fear. Minority and veteran-owned, the Ranch Houston is located south of the Medical Center, and you can visit their website at www.theranchhouston.com. I highly recommend it. I've been there. It's awesome. Check it out. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Apparel Up the leading custom apparel provider in Houston, Texas. They help their customers represent their brand correctly with high-quality, long-lasting custom apparel. Whether you're in need of embroidered scrubs for your medical practice, embroidered polos for your nationwide enterprise, or screen-printed shirts for your sport team, they got you covered. They also do the apparel for my show, so definitely buy some of that stuff too. And you can find their website at apparelup.us. Check them out. I got involved, you know, the, the heart attack stuff, they came out with, uh, a TPA, Red of AC's clot busting medicines. All right. That was cutting edge. It's just started when I was working with more Herman Southwest, you know, people coming with heart attacks. Um, we were able to give them these blood thinners that would open up the, uh, dissolve the clot if you got it in within three hours of onset and you could restore, you know, the, the, the heart and they give them time to do the bypass or whatever. Well, they also discovered that it works on clots in the brain, which oh, okay. is a stroke. Okay. And so the best save of the pinnacle of my career was, um, not this, um, Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving before, um, it was 2019. Yep. And, um, I was at work, got a call, 6.15 PM. Um, my mom's having a stroke and, uh, come quick. And, and so I got there and, uh, you know, she was within three hour window. There's only six hours with it. You can give the medicine before the clot becomes solid. It's the risks outweigh the benefits. Um, and, uh, the timeline got screwed up and I had, uh, I went toe to toe with that ER doc and I said, no, she's a candidate. You know, she walks, she takes care of herself. She drives, she's independent, this and that, you know, uh, and, and she couldn't talk. She couldn't move half her body. I mean, it was, you know, and I wasn't going to let him write her off. So, um, I went to the second doc and turned her over to the hospitalist and, and I, I, I changed my, my tack. And, um, I, I said, listen, there's a standard of care. And if 
that standard of care isn't met with my mother, then there will be consequences. And uh, she took me seriously. She got a neurologist to come down and do an evaluation and agreed it was a stroke in evolution. And it, we were in the window and give it. Within 15 minutes, she was talking. She said, I feel better. I want to get out of here. <laughs> wow. And then, yeah, it took another three weeks to, to, to learn to walk again. And and she's self-care. She's back on her feet. She's uh, driving. She drove She drove us to uh, to dinner the other night. And uh, we had a nice dinner. And and so, um, yeah, best save of my career. So it all paid off. Good and, and that's something that that you hear about where there's a disagreement on the treatment. You know, the human body um, is so complicated, right? right? And so many things can can happen with different variables. So you might have one doctor say, no, I think this should happen. You have another doctor who's like, no, this should happen. And then the doctor that ends up winning, his tactic results in death. Right. So, I mean, that's, I mean... That's tough. It's, it's tough. And, and so I actually, uh, I'm her medical power of attorney and, uh, I, uh, she's DNR, right? When she gets there, I said, there will be no CPR. What is, what there is will, DNR? There, do not resuscitate. Okay. Okay. So no CPR if it goes south. There's going to be no feeding tube. There's going to be no ventilator. There's going to be, she's going to make it or she's not going to make it. Okay. But there's no in between. All right. And, uh, cause I got the same advanced directives for myself. If I can't feed myself and clean myself, I go straight to hospice, withhold food, water, increase, turn up the, the pain management. I'm out of here in two weeks. Uh, I got my best friend, best man, and uh, MD is also my medical power of attorney. He gets my 401k to make sure I get off the planet quickly. <laughs> <laughs> so I put an incentive in there for him. So I love my mother with myself. I'm not going to have him do that to her. I'm not going to have him do that to me. You know what I mean? So, um, you know, my brother and sister are a little aghast at, at, at how assertive I was, but... Um, no, I, I, and the consequences are, you know, they, she could bleed out and hemorrhage and, you know, and go south. She could bleed out from anywhere in her body. It lices all of your body's ability to clot as well mm -hmm. as the clot that's being formed. So, you know, you can, you, I, I've seen patients that were candidates, you know, doing fine and then boom, they're, they're dead and they're, you can't reverse it. So, you know, and, but that was the chance I wouldn't take. Cause I discussed this. Dozens of times with my mom, all oh, the horror stories. She, you know, where do you, how do you feel about it? I will honor your wishes, whatever they are, mom. And she goes, no, I don't want to be a vegetable. She goes, no. Yeah, man. I'm, so, I'm on the same boat. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. one of those things where, like you said, if I can't feed myself, if I can't, I can't wipe myself, I can't talk, I'm, you know, I'm a vegetable. I don't want that. No, nobody yeah, does. Nobody we're a, does. We're a burden. We're a burden to the people we love. And when your family sees you dying slowly, slowly, day by day, they're dying with you. Yeah. You yeah. Know? Um, yeah. I remember my grandmother, she had a, I think it was like a, a brain aneurysm or right. something like that. And, uh, you know, they, they were able to save her life. But what did they really save? Right. She was there. I mean, she's alive. She's aware. I mean, you could see tears and stuff when she would see people, but, but is that really living? I mean, she's not talking. She would, she would just constantly just lose weight, get really, really thin. And eventually she just died. But I mean, what was that? What that year? I think a year or two that maybe, maybe like a year that they were able to keep her alive. Like you said, a burden on the family, burden on her. I'm sure she, if she could talk. 
she probably just say, man, you know, end this because this is not, it's not living. You know, it's one thing if, if, if you, if you become paralyzed, right? At least you can still move around. You can still talk, watch the game. You know, if your dick still works, still get it in. But if you can't even communicate, you can't, I mean, what, what, what is that? You're a prisoner in a cage. Mm-hmm. You're a prisoner in a cage. And even the Spanish Inquisition did not have the types of torture that we're able to put people through today because, you know, they had to inflict pain and stuff without, you know, drawing blood and so they, you know, all these different things, the iron maiden and the rack and the thumbscrew and all. But now, you know, your body to be, can, can be too sick to live, but modern medicine won't let you die. It's like the prisoners in Guantanamo. You know, they, they go on hunger strike and they want to starve themselves to death because they don't want to live in those conditions. Well, they take them out of the cell. They st- stick a tube down their, their throat and their stomach. They force feed them, okay, and they put them back in their cell. So they're forcing them to stay alive and endure the suffering, you know, and, and, and the torture beyond their body's um, uh, expiration date, you see. And, and this really only happens in America because it's a... Um, it's a financially driven um, right, system, right? right? See, where in the UK and Canada, civilized countries, they don't do that to people. You're, you, you know, you, you're, they don't put 80 year old people on dialysis and stuff. They just keep them comfortable and clean. And that's the expectation because everybody understands you have to do the most good for the most people with their resources. You, they probably put 20, 20 million dollars into your grandmother. Oh, during those two years, you know, first the, the burr holes in the brain to drain the pressure and then, you know, the feeding tube and the ventilator and, you know, all this stuff. Each day in the IC is 20, 30 grand. Yeah, it's you crazy. Know, it's crazy. So it's, it, it's a business. It's a business. Financial incentive to, to keep dead people alive. And uh, that's, that's the dark side of medicine, you know, so we got to look at them. You know, we, we come up with great innovations. We came up with that, uh, that, that clot busting medicine was from the saliva of vampire bats. Because if somebody was curious how the vampire bats was able to, to drink, you know, continue to, without blood clotting. Well, wow. there, yes, yes, there's a special chemical in the saliva that, uh, keeps the blood from clotting. So, I mean, you know, these transcendent stents, heart, heart stents, bypass surgery, you know, all these, you know, miracle innovations, you know, the way they fix my neck, I got a plate and screws holding my head on my shoulders, you know, um, and the, the rhinoplasty and nasal septal reconstruction and all the stuff they did to me is just cutting edge, you know, science. So, um, I'd been crippled and dead decades ago and not able to help people had, you know, I not had the, the resources of the innovations that um, science and technology has come up with. And that's financially driven. So, right. you know, I mean, you got there, there's, there's the, the, the light and dark. So you were, you were doing the, the you, you were paramedic and eventually you made the transition to, to ER or, or to, to register to nursing, nurse. to nursing. How, how did that, how did that come about? I mean, it's, it's not a, you know, going the other direction, right? They're both. No, 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 no. It, but it, how did that happen? Okay. Good question. All right. So I'll tell you. So I was running eight to 14, you know, calls in a, in a 12 hour shift. Okay. And I mean, and I'm, it's not the skinny people 
having the heart attack. <laughs> all right. It's, it's the heavy ones on the third floor on the project where the elevator's broken. You got to carry them down the stairs and everything. And so my back was screaming at me and my neck was screaming at me. And I, I physically can't do this any longer. And I'm pulling up and I'm see these, uh, ER nurse, it looks like they're drinking coffee and eating donuts compared to what I'm doing. So I said, said, shit, I can do that. I'm doing all the hard stuff. You know (laughs) what I mean? So, um, yeah. So I traded in my, uh, my, um, my ER. Well, I didn't trade it in. I, I, I acquired a, a nursing license to get out of, um, to save my life, you know, to, right. to become, keep from becoming crippled, you know, and, um, and, and so, um, you know, the obvious place for me to go is, is emergency medicine because I knew it already. And then I also had the privilege of going to, uh, the, uh, cardiovascular recovery unit, which, uh, you know, they do the open heart bypass and then the cardiac catheterizations and, you know, all the stuff. And I really got to, to tinker with, I mean, learn how these medicines work intimately, you know. So one was ER's macro management, ICU micromanagement, you know, hourly urine outputs, hourly this. You're watching with each pulse of the heart, which each beat of the heart, I get it, you know, pressure readings and I can adjust my drips to, to get my pressures within range. You see what I'm saying? So it's, you know, it, it's a constant. So I learned the, the, the micro and the macro, uh, the macro and the micro. And, um, and I became pretty damn good at, uh, you know, pretty good chef, you know, mm-hmm. I'd say. So that, that was, that was my motivation was survival. Um, and, uh, so I go back to nursing school. I could run a code, but I couldn't make a bed. So I had to, you know, do the bed making, <laughs> and, you know, and put on the little, the cap and stockings and stuff like that. And, uh, and so that, that was a hard part for me, role transition. Okay. So when, uh, I, um, you know, I became a nurse and, um, and nursing school was fun because most of those girls are out of high school. <laughs> I was a seasoned professional, so, so we helped each I'm other. I'm sure a lot of after-hour study time, huh? <laughs> we helped each other. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, where was I going with that? It was a little... Uh, Side trail. You were just talking about the, the, the role transition. The role transition, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I was used to being the captain of my ship, and now I'm the spoke in the wheel, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm taking orders instead of giving them, you know. Yeah. I guess that's got to be tough. Um, I mean, obviously, all my knowledge is just based on TV shows. <laughs> I really like that show, Nurse Jackie. Like, when I saw that show, I was like, oh, my God, I want to be a doctor. I want to save lives. Um, but... Um, I always noticed in the show, and I'm, I mean, you could you could answer it. Is there ever like a disagreement or a debate with the doctor on what the best course should be with the patient, or do you just kind of go whatever you say, doc? No, that that actually landed me in front of the board of nurse examiners uh, uh, for uh, um, exceeding scope of practice. Um, you know, I uh, um, had a patient. Um, hypertensive crisis, congestive heart failure, you know, and he needed to be intubated. So, um, pressure's up, not breathing well, lungs are full of fluid. Um, we needed to get a tube in his airway, um, to force air into the lungs and push that fluid out. Um, and the doctor couldn't tube him. He kept getting it in his stomach. And then so you had corn and 
you know, soup and all this stuff coming out. And I, I, I said, you're in the gut, man, you know, and you got a full room of people, your respiratory and radiology and everything. And I said, I said, if you can't too, well, I will, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that didn't go over well. Right. So, um, anyway, um, he said, well, just give him this paralytic and just give him this medicine, just give him the medicine, you know? And, and so eventually another doctor had to come in and intubate for him. Um, and then, you know, everybody leaves the room. I'm in the room with the patient. Mm-hmm. And the patient's going down the tubes. All those medicines that he said give, okay, well, they were dropping his pressure. So he, his pressure was like, I don't know, 240 over 130 when he came in. And then, you know, it is, you know, stabilizing. And then it's going over like 90 over 60, you know, 80 over, uh, um, 40, you know, you know, he's dying on me, right? So, you know, being a medic, man, I, I open that crash card to get the dopamine, I hang it, you know, titrate it, da, 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 da. you know, it's all on the monitor and the pressure starts coming up. Perfect, perfect save, man. Heart rate's right within it, you know, and the doctor comes in and like, hey, man, he nearly crashed. I started the dopamine and, you know, he started the dopamine. I said, yeah, it takes the less protocol. So the only protocol there is, the orders I give, and I didn't order dopamine, you know, if you're practicing medicine without a license, you're out of your scope. You're going down. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, so no, they, they peer review and, you know, um, and, you know, I being, being a, a hot dog and a, 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 you know, not knowing the diplomacy of, of being a new nurse, not a diplomacy in my, in my, my position, I, I didn't handle it well. You know, I, I could have, I could have aborted all that ego clashing. Right. Um, and, and I, it went and I wouldn't take them their shit. And, um, I, um, I went before administrative law judge who looked over all the evidence and ruled on my behalf. Okay. No, no action should be taken on behalf of, you know, respondent nurse Robert Schwartz, you know, and my, um, it's, it's public record, you know, 609, 409 nursing license. And, um, and, uh, there's a little known, um, fact that the nursing license is governed by the board of nursing and they chose their own findings of fact and rule of law and overturned the judge's decision and stuck me with sanctions anyway. Wow. <laughs> so that, that taught me a, a, a lesson because I, wanted to become an advocate for nurses that were getting screwed. Okay. So I, I am a nurse advocate. And, um, so, so nurses with, uh, you know, um, drug problems, rehabilitation, stuff like that. Even if you have say postpartum depression from having a child. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you're, you're emotionally or what unstable, they can encumber your license and take your license. All right. So, um, after my, um, Turned out to be a five, seven year experience idling the board and, and protecting my license. Um, I um, started and went to some courses and found out how to advocate for nurses. I'm a nurse advocate and um, I've helped uh, dozens of nurses keep their license over the decades. And um, that's been rewarding. And uh, so, um, you know, it's. A part of, part of helping my peers because I also know, 
you know, who can help defend them better. And I, I've been in your shoes. I don't even need, I don't even ask them about the details of the case. I just, you know, uh, I want to know what's going on and, and how we can improve because we're all human. We'll all make mistakes. Um, and we learn from them. And fortunately, um, and, and there was another a sad situation. There was a, a nurse, um, in the ICU. Good guy. Um, he, he was, he was stealing drugs and, um, they caught him and, uh, they took his license. And so he lost his license. He lost his fiance. Um, he tried to apply another career, like to get into med school and this, and they barred him from that. And then in the parking lot, he, uh, took a gun and, and, uh, blew his brains out. Wow. And, uh, and so, and it didn't need to go down like that. So, I mean, he obviously had a problem. He should have gotten help. He should have gotten help. And, uh, they're supposed to offer, um, you know, uh, the, uh, Texas nurses, um, peer assistance program. Um, and that's who I advocate nurses for nurses through. And so it's not just related to drugs. It's also related to emotional or, you know, even if you say you got PTSD from a whatever and you go get counseling for it and you, you need depression medicine, they can see that depression where you're depressed. You're not fit to be a nurse. You can take your license. You know. Yeah, that's that's, that's what you, they're going to take away your license because you developed something that while you were working. Like, right. what kind of bullshit is that? You know, so, it's ridiculous. So consider this: um, when you're in combat, you're you, they usually cycle you through the front lines about you know two years. Right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, I I've been in combat um, since '89, essentially right. on, the front, on the front lines. All right, and uh, what it's 2001. All right. So, um, and I've been to all the big, big block ERs, St. Luke's, St. Joe's in the Texas Medical Center for 10 years. Um, uh, um, St. Luke's in Texas Medical Center for 10 years and, uh, St. Joe's, um, Memorial Hermann Southwest, um, Methodist. So I, I've been in all the, the, you know, the big trauma centers, even UTMB Galveston, level one trauma. And, um, so I, I've been on the front lines. Um, for 10, for, for 30 years in the heat of battle, you know, and, um, I've had to, you know, find constructive ways of, of coping with what I've encountered and seen and felt and, you know, and process it and, and, and keep it positive. You know, going back to what you said about, uh, the doctors, you know, telling you, you know, that's not an order that I gave. I mean, you're in the life-saving business, and I'm fairly certain that there are times when a, a decision has to be made at that at that very moment. There's no, there's no two seconds, three seconds. There's no, hey, hey, doc, where are you? He's taking a shit. There's no, there's no time for that. No time for it. You gotta, you gotta do what you gotta do. I mean, you're a, you're a fucking paramedic. Like you, that's. I mean, it's, it's, and 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 you make a call. It saves somebody's life, but still, because it's not following quote unquote protocol, you know, you, you, you get, you know, you get, you know, reprimanded for that. That's that it's, it's, it's almost like, um, you know, this hierarchy of the doctor feeling like he's better than you feeling like because he didn't make the call or you didn't follow the, the procedure. It's like, it's like, dude, like I did what I had to do. 
to save this person's life. That's the bottom line. That should uh, that should go over anything else, right? It should supersede all other egos, objectives, and, and things. And had I not said, if you can't intubate the guy, I will in front of everybody, <laughs> he probably would. Or if I hadn't said I started the dopamine and bragged about it, then mm-hmm. he probably might not even noticed it was going. Right. You know, so, I mean, hey, I got to accept my end of the, you know, I wasn't tactful. I wasn't, you know, I was arrogant asshole myself and I, maybe I got what's coming to me and hopefully it taught me some diplomacy and humility um, but um, it's uh, I, you know I even took that that rhythm strip where the guy's pressure was dropping and he was mm-hmm. dying and I, I found the man I knocked on his door and I said sir they're trying to take my license and um, I um, I said so they're trying to take my license and I need uh, uh I, I need you to, um, you know, don't uh, agree. Yeah. Yes, vouch for me, right? Mm-hmm. And so he took that 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 rhythm strip sheet, and he said, um, he said, um, "Thank you for saving my life. Uh, we need more nurses like him." And um, so. Um, I was able to present that in my defense and um, that allowed me to um, have a leg to stand on. And uh, Well, like you said, the, the first judge ruled on your behalf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Uh, uh, yeah, but the board has the ultimate authority and um, discretion of uh, nursing life. So. Yeah, it's some bullshit right there. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, yeah, I, I, I learned the hard, the hard way, but it's a good way to learn because I know the Nursing Practice Act and I know my, my scope of practice and I know my roles. And I, if I, if I don't agree with a medicine that they want to give, I can draw it up and hand it to them and say, you give it, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, or I can, you know, more tactfully say, Hey, if we do this, this might be the outcome. Would you like to try this approach? And, um, at 56, I, I have, uh, absorbed the experiences of hundreds of great ER doctors and they've taught me so much. And I'm, I can disseminate that to the other day here. You know, if we try this instead of that, here's the rationale. And what do you think? And they can, they can sign off on it or they can, um, um, decline it, but uh, you know, at least I aired my my opinion, and and unfortunately, I, I guess my presentation's gotten better because uh, my patients have good outcomes, and um, and and I, I have good rapport with most of the physicians. So, so I'm sure your profession is, uh, and it's a busy one, I guess, depending on where you're at, depending on what's going on at the time. <laughs> But what 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 we got going on now? Um, I'm sure you're just just working your ass off, right? I mean, uh, I hear about. I have a friend who's a nurse, and she's posting on Facebook how many hours she's putting in. So I'm assuming you're doing the same, right? They got they got to work on your ass off during during this like last year, huh? Business is good, and in my entire career, I've never seen the insanity that um you know this covid craze is is caused it's it's a media driven pandemic um i looked at the statistics of uh 
mortality worldwide uh, published by the world health organization recently because i had a debate with my uncle who's a harvard attorney and um uh you know he was a COVID this COVID that i said it's your brainwashed man um you're, you're listening to the tv and you're listening to the news and and uh, here's the reality of it um when you look at the 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 top 10 causes of death um in 2000 and the top 10 causes of death in, death in 2019 they are uh an the exact same order. Cardiovascular is number one. Um, you know, and then I think it goes into, um, trauma and then, you know, um, um, lower respiratory illness, uh, which is COVID. It's, and so is, um, um, COPD caused by smoking, you know, those things, pneumonias. Okay. Right. They're, 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 it's ranked fourth. Okay. And it's been ranked fourth in 2000 and in 2019. So the ranking has not changed. You don't see this big spike. Now, you know, lower respiratory disease is number one because of COVID bullshit. Um, if you take into account the population growth from 2000 to 2019, okay, it's even less. All right. There is less of a cause of death by this disorder today than there was in 2000, you know, even integrating COVID. So COVID this, COVID that, you know, um, the social ills caused from um, COVID far exceeded um, any mortality that, um, that, 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 you know, the world has suffered. When they sequestered everybody in their house for a month and they bombarded them with how bad, you know, COVID was and, and they're brainwashing everybody. You've traumatized kids, okay, growing up that they don't play with their friends anymore. You've uh, you've created uh, job loss and economic problems. That mental health. Mental health. That that leads to um, domestic violence, okay? And that, that leads to um, uh, drug drug abuse, alcoholism, you know, just a, a plethora of, of new new problems that are also coming into the ER because you you chop the legs out of the economy. All right. And and there's gonna be a price to pay for dumping, you know, a total of what, twelve trillion dollars. And where is money coming from? They're just printing it, okay? You gotta pay the piper man coming down the road. It's, you know, there's there's gonna be a price to pay. You know, it's it's um you know, I, I, I agree with what you're saying. Um I think from what I could gather you know, in the beginning, you know, we didn't really know, right? In the be- in the beginning, no. you know, we didn't really we're like, well, what is this? You know, we don't know. People are dying. Is this Ebola? Is this gonna? Is this is this the uh, the swine flu? Like, what 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 is this? We didn't know. And as we start getting more and more information, it's like, well, what we're seeing is the people that are dying from this are the people that are really unhealthy. So these unhealthy people which will probably die from getting the flu or some other thing is it's like, it's like, so hold on. So what you're saying, the solution is to lock people up in their houses and which is not healthy for your mental health, which is not healthy for your physical health. Like you said, people are, you're giving them money to, you're giving them this, you raise the unemployment, right? A lot of people lost their jobs. Which, which I understand because, you know, the, the scare. So you, you do need to provide if that's the course you're going to take. Makes sense. But what, look what you're doing. So now these people, you're giving them money to stay home. What do you think they're going to do? They're going to fucking drink, do drugs, and watch Netflix, right? So all these people are getting fatter, 
right? They're drinking, they're smoking, so they're just becoming unhealthier. You're depriving them from the sun. You're not going outside. Vitamin D has been shown that the majority of people dying from COVID, like 80-something percent, are vitamin D deficient. Okay? I mean, you, you're, 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 you're spot on, and, man. And, and I'm just like, what the fuck? Like, I, I, I get it. Okay, so we, under, we, we understand, okay, it, it affects unhealthy people the most. Okay, so why don't they stay home? So why don't the people that are in jeopardy, they they stay home, and then the rest of us can go on, live our lives, and keep this economy going, right? Like, because at the end of the day, yes, people have died. We, we can't, even though the numbers are a little bit skewed, because if somebody dies of a heart attack, but they had COVID, oh, they died of COVID. But you know what I'm saying? They, 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 you know, they, they, they want it. They want, oh, they had COVID, even though they died. Oh, they died. It's like, you, the numbers are... But I'm, I'm still going to say, okay, there are probably some people that didn't have this other thing happen to them, that they got COVID, they were unhealthy, and they died. Okay, I'll give you that. But what about, you talked about it, you said it, the domestic violence increase. What about the mental health? Is, is, it, is it really better to have taken this course? Because how many people have been affected from that? What have you done to society? You talk about the kids not being able to play um, a year doing this virtual learning. I mean, is that really the best way to learn? Don't they need to play with other kids? Ain't that a part of the development process? Like, I get it if you're an introvert and you just want to stay home and play video games all day and you don't want to associate with society. Okay, good for you. But guess what? That's not most people. Most people need to be out there. Most people need to communicate, need to interact with others. And... I just think that initially we didn't know, but once the facts and the evidence started coming in, why did shit remain like this? Like it just it it just if I felt like you know we just we just really dropped the ball on it. You know, if we were gonna do this lockdown, then do a fucking lockdown. This is bullshit ass lockdown that you're doing where people aren't even really staying in, you still people got going out. Like you could have done a month of a really hard lockdown. At least that would have put a little stop to the spread of the virus, then open shit up. But the way they did it was these bullshit ass lockdowns. Some states are doing it. Some states are not. It's like, there's no consistency. It just, it was just, no matter how you look at it, whether you believe this or that, what we all can agree on is that this shit was handled incorrectly. Bottom line. You're spot on. You're spot on there. Um, and I, um, you know, you hit on all the, the points that, that were coming to mind. And as they were coming to my mind, you were expressing them. Um, the, the social ills that we've created by, you know, over exaggerating this, this one thing. And not only that, but it is the, the sick people with multiple comorbidities. Mm -hmm. They're, they're, they're diabetics. They're on dialysis. They're on ventilators and feeding tubes. And, 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 and then, you know, you, you have an LTAC unit, which is a, a, um, a, uh, it's a life support unit or, you know, or a wing of a hospital. And then, you know, one person with the, gets the virus and then it sweeps through the whole, you know, unit and, uh, you know, wipes out 70% of their people that were on life support. Well, I mean, you know, was it the virus that killed them or was it their, you know, inability to eat and drink and breathe on their own that that was really they were already dead, but um, we were keeping them alive artificially 
So, um, you know, when uh, you look at it, jeopardize the uh, the financial um, income uh, of the hospitals about a maintaining all these people artificially on, um, you know, all these resources, uh, then that, that maybe you can see the over exaggeration. Uh, a lot of times they say, follow the money. And um, that that can be a, a disproportionate amount of, you know, um, uh Emphasis placed on, you know, the, and the cause of death, they, they write off as COVID because it's an, it's an easy, um, um, MRN number or what do they call it? Uh, uh, LG is a special, it's, a, it's an easy code for them to just, you know, sign it off, but it, it skews the statistics. And, um, so like, like I said, livering's terminal, suffering's optional. So it, it could have been a blessing for all these people that were languishing, looking at fluorescent lights, unable to breathe on their own, unable to, you know, feed themselves or clean themselves. And then, you know, this, you know, uh, angel of mercy comes through the wing and, and takes them all out. I mean, it depends upon perspective. I mean, mm-hmm. the quality of life. Okay. Right. Number of days or quality of life. That's the big debate. You know, and I'm, I'm, I'm not, I know what's right for me. I'm not, I'm not making anybody else's decisions, you know? Um, and, uh, so, and I, I, I've made my decision and I champion my patient's decisions. You know, if, uh, the family pulls me aside and, you know, say, what would you do in this situation? I would say, have they, have you ever had a talk with them? And did they ever said that they wanted to be on life support? They wanted to be, you know, and if they said, no, they didn't want, well, then your only choice is to champion their dying wish. There, you don't have to make sight because there is, uh, um, you know, an army of people in white coats coming down here that tell you that if you don't do this procedure, they're going to die. And if you don't put it in the feeding tube, they're going to die. And if you don't put them on the ventilator, they're going to die. Well, here's the reality. You're gonna die anyway. And and, and let me ask you this: uh, how does how does that work when you have somebody who maybe they're still able to communicate, but you know they kind of have this feeling that they don't have too much time left? Um, is is there a process they can do where like, hey, like I need a lawyer or I need to do something like I I don't want to like? It, it, no, it's a simple form. You get the um, uh, the. It's not the chaplain, but it's the um, social worker mm-hmm. go in there or administration goes in advanced directives. Here it is. Um, here's the thing. You you want to be kept alive at all cost or you want to die, have a natural death. This and that. Check, check here, here and sign this. And uh, we have to honor your wishes while oh, you're okay. interested. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, like you said, some people have already done this right they, 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 they already have it but, yeah, if you, but a lot they, of people uh, haven't right no most people don't they most don't, people don't they don't want to confront it they don't want to confront it they don't want to uh you know think about it it's it's right. the pink elephant in the room we all know you're dying but you're not gonna talk about it no we mm-hmm. you know but here's the thing even if you have talked about it you had made all your wishes and have I'll put it down and you have it signed by attorney and everybody signed off on it and then you're at home on hospice um and somebody calls 911 well, you have just thrown all that patient's will and wishes, everything under the bus. Because once 911 is activated, EMS gets there. I show up. Mm-hmm. I don't have time to take names and check. Right. You know, Damn, all, that, no t- all I know is somebody's dying. I'm going to stop that and get out of my way. And they're on hospital. Well, you shouldn't have called me. Okay. Cause I'm here now and this is my case. And, um, so, you know, I, I can have police SWAT, um, 
uh, fire activated to get you out of the way, whatever it takes. Um, you know, and because you can always, you can, you can always unplug them later. You can't plug them back in later. Okay. Right. And, well, he was called to the scene and he, he let grandpa die. You know, and uh, that ain't happening. I ain't falling on me. No, somebody called me. I'm saving. I'm doing my best I can. It ain't up to me whether they live or die. I'm not, I'm not God. You know what right. I mean? But I'll do my best and use every, you know, tool in my toolkit to make sure they, they don't check out on me and, uh, that they can sort it out. Now, I ain't sorting it out of the ER. They're sorting it out in the ICU or on the floor or wherever. Cause I even had ambulance crews bring a patient to me and say, Oh, he was on hospice and they called us. So no, let me get a slow code. I said, look around you. This isn't rest in peace. This right. is do everything to everybody all the time and put holes where they're not supposed to be. Okay. I said, I'm sorry. You know, they, sorry they activated you, but now it's my responsibility mm-hmm. and I'm going to keep them alive. Okay. Yeah. And then they can sort it out. Yeah, I mean, you, like you said, it's it's not up to you. It's not up to me. It's not. I, I, you, you're I, I you're there my, to do a job. I, you got your instructions, exactly. and that's. And I mean, we already know what happens when you go rogue. <laughs> been there, done that. No, no, no. I've been, I've been on both sides of the stick, and I, I, I know what side of the stick I'm staying on. I got to stay in the game a few more years. Got to stay in the game a few more years, and 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 make it to retirement. And, and, uh, and hopefully have a better life, you know. Uh, but, uh, gosh, it's been, it's, I've been a high adrenaline ride from the motorcycle to the, <laughs> all the way through the emergency room. And, uh, I, um, it's, it's, it's a privilege to have served the public. It's a privilege to have been in the right time at the right place. And I thank the power that put me here, that kept me here and, um, has allowed me to help people in their moment of crisis and turn bad situations into good one. And like the crowning achievement of, of my life was being there for my mom who, who said afterwards that I was her knight in shining armor. Man, I, I feel like that's, that's the closing statement right there, Robert. I mean, that was, um, we, we covered from, from then to now. And, uh, I, I'm, thanks again for coming on, man. This was, I really enjoyed this conversation, man. I, and I, and I know anybody who tunes in is going to really enjoy it. It was a privilege and a pleasure and an honor. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Yeah. Have a good one, folks. <laughs>